Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. This is Special Briefing. We have a terrific panel for you today, as always, of course, to discuss how cities and counties are coping with COVID-19's fiscal shock. This is a big issue, especially for smaller cities and counties. And uh, with us today to discuss this are Beth Keller, who's Senior Fellow for the Center for State and Local Government Excellence and the Director of Public Policy at the International City-County Management Association, uh, Chuck Reed, my friend, former mayor of San Jose, California, and special counsel at Hopkins and Carly, and my friend, Natalie Cohn, president uh, of National Municipal Research, former head of beauty research at Wells Fargo, and before that, a cities expert working with National League of Cities. We are well prepared for your questions. We're well prepared for a great discussion today. And with that, I'm going to introduce uh, and turn the mic over to Susan Wachter from Penn IUR. Uh, Susan, good morning. Good morning, Bill. Thank you so much. And I'd like to once again welcome all attendees to this special briefing on how cities and counties are coping with COVID-19's fiscal shock. And our first speaker today, Beth Keller, is in an extremely good position to give us the big picture on this. Beth Keller, as Bill just noted, is a senior fellow, Center for State and Local Government Excellence, and director of public policy for the International City-County Management Association. Beth, please go ahead and give us the big picture. How are cities and counties trying to balance budgets in this difficult period? Thank you, Susan. And it is uh, as challenging a time as certainly I have seen in my lifetime. So it's huge problem. Just to give you a point of comparison, during the Great Recession, state and local governments lost 720,000 jobs over a period of several years but we have already lost more than twice that number of jobs in just two months, April and May of 2020, where we shed uh, 1.68 million jobs. It's a, a huge and steep downturn. The International Monetary Fund predicts the current downturn will be the worst since the Great Depression in the 1930s. And I think we all uh, could agree that recovery may take years and we aren't going to be able to resume normal activity until we have confidence in a vaccine and its uh, wide distribution. One of the things that we want to make sure everybody understands is that the majority of the losses in jobs that I just mentioned are in local governments with uh, education jobs being the most uh, badly affected. So we have a little bit of good news, and that is that many local governments had some rainy day funds uh, set aside uh, before the pandemic hit. And the other good news is that Congress acted quickly to pass the CARES Act, and that had $150 billion for state and local governments. However, it was just for COVID-19 expenses. It was not for this dramatic revenue shortfall that I'll talk about momentarily. It's also been challenging to be able to follow the federal guidance. Uh, it's lagged and there's a lot of concern in some states and that affects local governments because the money, only a few cities and counties got direct aid. These were cities and counties with a population of over 500,000 and that's a relatively small number. So most of our state capitals, for instance, are under 500,000. They didn't get direct aid 
And it's been left up to the states to figure out how to distribute the money that they have to the cities and counties within their state. Some have done that better than others, but I think all states are worried about the documentation that's required. So it's moved slowly, and there's a real question about accounting for the money in a way that will meet all the requirements. Uh, just today on ICMA's online conversation, I saw people talking about, gee, do you have a good tool to keep track of and document all your expenses? And that includes for things like small business applications for grants. One other good piece of news is that Treasury did say in late June that local governments can use the CARES Act funds to meet their 25% cost match required for disaster assistance grants. Now on to the bad news, as if we hadn't had enough already. So the revenue losses are steep. We're seeing dramatic declines in personal income and sales taxes across the country. We anticipate a $360 billion revenue loss for cities over the next three years. And in a June NLC survey, they found that 74% of municipalities, and that's of all sizes, have started making cuts with the greatest impacts on larger cities. For example, those between 200,000 and 500,000, some 39% are planning layoffs. And if you're in a large city of 500,000 or larger, 47% of those cities are planning layoffs. Obviously, some places are hit harder and quicker than others. For example, if you're dependent on tourism, that's been tough. But there are a lot of things that have hurt us on the revenue side that you might not think about, like water and sewer fee collections in some cases have been delayed because of certain reasonable efforts to support individuals and avoid water turnoffs. One of the things that worries me is that we're seeing a lot of places delay capital alley capital improvement projects and infrastructure projects, and that's 65% the NLC survey and 61% delaying or canceling equipment purchase. Counties also are affected, and in many cases, a county and a city can't distinguish between, but $114 billion has been lost in revenue from county collected sales taxes and local fees. And property taxes, and believe it or not, that's probably the most stable for right now because there's usually a three-year phase-in on property taxes. So I think those uh, jurisdictions that are most dependent on property taxes are probably the most stable. But overall, most states and local governments face a 10 to 20% decline in revenues. One thing that we got in the Families First Act was an increase in the federal medical assistance percentage on a temporary basis to 6.2%. And the state and local government national associations are asking Congress to increase that to 12%, which is the percentage that Congress had provided during the Great Recession. So we know uh, because uh, we have not only the impact of losing more jobs, but we also in the state and local government are big contributors to purchasing. And in the state and local community, purchasing is 11% of GDP. And just last month, the CBO found that state and local purchases have declined by $350 billion, accounting for 9% of the total GDP decline. So I know the situation varies depending on the source of revenue. One of the things that has impressed me is how local governments have stepped up to try to support their local businesses. They've provided small grants uh, to their local small businesses, even if it meant in some cases they were doing so from budgets for maintenance and capital projects uh, because they just felt the survival issues were so great. 
I think we can all agree that the pandemic is going to change everything uh, and the shift to the online world has sped up and the shape of the economy, housing patterns and retail operations are going to also change how our cities and counties look. One of the other issues that's come up is social equity. It's now front and center. And I would say uh, when we have a little time to talk about it, uh, good data and analysis, including on the social equity issues, is driving more decisions. In fact, increasingly we see local governments have chief equity officers and chief resilience officers, and, and they're just seeing some very interesting ways that people are trying to engage and use data to drive decisions. I think with that, my time is probably up, Susan, so I'll yield the floor. Thank you so much, Beth, for that big picture of the challenging times for states and counties and the knock-on effects on the overall economy and the states and counties' efforts to support their local economy. We'll now turn to Mayor Chuck Reed, former mayor of San Jose, California, who has was in office during the last crisis and did experience the need to uh, respond to a severe downturn. Uh, Mayor, can you please tell us lessons learned from the last and what's happening in California now? Uh, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon or good evening, as Bill said. I had the, uh, the good fortune or the bad fortune, depending upon your point of view, to come into office as a council member just in time for the dot-com boom to go bust. Uh, and then I took office as mayor just in time for the Great Recession. So I've been through uh, multiple cycles of boom and bust, and uh, I am uh, extremely grateful that I am not in office now because I think this one is going to be worse than the Great Recession. But I, I do have a pretty good understanding of how cities and counties are going to cope with it, at least initially. And they will turn to the tools uh, that we've seen in the past. First is uh, cutting services. That will be done initially by just eliminating positions or jobs as they become vacant, and then by uh, layoffs of people that are employed by cities and counties. And uh, so cutting services will be widespread. Beth mentioned the uh, reductions in uh, capital spendings, reductions in infrastructure spending, and that will be widespread as well because that's the easiest thing to do is to take money from one area and move it to another so that you can maintain services or maintain employment. The other old standby, of course, is borrowing. And borrowing will take many forms because local governments are extremely creative at coming up ways to shift money around and to borrow from the future. So that will take place, say, uh, interfund transfers, underfunding obligations like pensions and healthcare benefits. We never fully recovered from uh, the bust of 2000 or the Great Recession in terms of funding for pensions and and other post-employment benefits. So that will get a lot worse as people come up with creative ways to not pay their annual contributions into their, their pension funds and certainly will continue to ignore their obligations as they grow for other post-employment benefits. Then there'll be some direct borrowing and whether that takes, that takes the form of pension obligation bonds or borrowing money from institutional investors or whatever, there'll be some of that, but, but most of the borrowing will be in ways that are, that are not quite so obvious. 
but nevertheless, uh, we will see a deterioration in infrastructure, deterioration in capital spending. And uh, the difficulty in that is that even in the best of times, uh, cities and counties, uh, most of them don't have enough money. So there's never enough money to go around. And these are going to be the worst of times, I think, uh, uh, second only to the, the Great Depression, worse than the Great Recession. And so cities start at a relatively low uh, capacity to respond to financial shock and financial experience. And uh, much of what's happening now is hope, hope for a V recession, hope for a, a narrow U recession, hope for a bailout from the state, hope for a bailout from the federal government, hope that things will be better and working on optimistic scenarios. And those will become clear as not workable, but it'll take probably another year before cities begin the, the really difficult task of, of coping with and dealing with their loss of revenues. Cash flow will, will tend to drive that discussion as long as they can borrow and as long as they have money they can, they can tap, they will. When cash flow gets uh, tight, uh, I think we'll start seeing a lot of bankruptcies at the local level as a means of, of coping with this, uh, this massive reduction in benefits and a, a substantial increase in costs to deal with COVID-related expense increases. So that's a totally not optimistic scenario, but I think now optimism is unrealistic in the face of, the, of this COVID crisis that pessimism has to be a normal way of approaching it because cities and local governments uh, do not have the capacity of the federal government just to borrow money endlessly to cope with it. We're just hoping that the federal government will do that and give us all the money. That's not likely to happen. So I think we're going to see a, a repeat of the experiences after the Great Recession, but only worse. And with that, I will uh, cut it off and turn the microphone back over to our next speaker. Well, thank you, Chuck. Uh, thank you. With fingers crossed, as you say, this is not a uh, not an optimistic scenario. And during the discussion, I hope we can go back through some of the revenue loss and tax implications that you're that that you're laying out. Natalie Cohn is up next. Natalie is president of National Municipal Research. She is a leading independent consultant in the municipal finance area, and also well known for, as I mentioned, for her time at uh, Wells Fargo. Natalie discussed the other day the concept of the personal fiscal cliff that's looming. The $600 special weekly unemployment benefit right now is due to run out at the end of the month, so it's just a matter of days. We have another fiscal cliff coming up in October when some of the corporate uh, job incentives in the CARE Act, uh, CARES Act expire. We've seen just uh, United and, uh, and American alone announcing uh, the possibility of layoffs of almost 50,000 people, that would ratchet through the, through the economy pretty quickly. So t tell us about this, uh, this, this fiscal cliff and, and what, what the risks are for the economy, for municipalities, uh, states and municipalities, and, and for the muni market as well. Yes, thanks, Bill, and hello to everyone that's listening. This came up in our discussion about federal aid that is coming to an end and what the implications might be. It has significant implications for the housing market, 
before we entered this period of the coronavirus and the shutdowns, affordable housing was already a significant issue. Many cities have experienced homelessness. And the aid that has been presented by the federal government offered forbearance on evictions, and there have been mortgage moratoria. These will be ending, rolling through end of July, August, and uh, as Bill mentioned earlier in the fall, on the corporate side, the extra unemployment sweetener of $600 a week, which is being contested in the Congress, is coming to an end. And so, unfortunately, the concern is that homelessness may rear its head again for the cities. And as most people know, homeless shelters and encampments are petri dishes for COVID-19. And also this impact falls on many of the uh, minority communities and immigrant communities. On the other side, in the last few years during the recovery and the strong economy, a lot of young adult working people had moved back into the cities and created certain vibrancy in neighborhoods that had previously been relatively stagnant. They gave vibrancy to the restaurants and the bars in their communities. They were commuting in, in some respects, and I, in the last week, I've heard of numerous instances in, I live in New York, in the uh, the Brooklyn, in the Williamsburg areas, that many of those young adults have lost their jobs and they've moved back with, if they can, with their parents or they've moved to less expensive places. I've also heard just anecdotally in the last week of families that are doubling and tripling up with married children and in many cases, grandchildren. So I suspect this is a trend that we're gonna see, unfortunately. Bill, you had also asked about the municipal market and I know I know that Beth had touched on it and some of the, the listeners may be curious about this. We actually, I think it's very important to make a distinction between the bond market as well as the equity markets and what we call the real economy. The equity markets, as people know, have been soaring in many ways. The S&P 500, the top seven largest companies, which are many know, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and NVIDIA, have been up 45% year to date. The rest of the index has been down 11%. But those are those are headline numbers. In the municipal bond market, the first half of the year, borrowing was actually up by $25 billion. You might ask, well, let's look at the March to June time period. Borrowing was up by $1.9 billion. A lot of this is the lower for longer Federal Reserve keeping interest rates low. Much of this was uh, refundings. About 31% of that those dollars were refundings. A lot of municipalities are refunding their debt with taxable money because the rates are just so low. But the supply and demand for now on the market side is not broken. ETFs have brought in $3.3 billion, municipal ETFs, and mutual funds have brought in over $12 billion over the last nine weeks. So, But my point is, again, there's a distinction to be made between the financial markets and the real economy. A few other 
comments because I'm going to talk a little bit about the municipal liquidity fund that the Federal Reserve in March, when there was market freakout essentially at the beginning of March, the Federal Reserve stepped in with numerous liquidity help. And it was actually historically the first time that they had included the municipal market in that with their um, municipal liquidity fund. The fund has been slow to roll out. There have been numerous revisions of eligibility. The only borrower so far is the state of Illinois, which has borrowed $1.2 billion in the fund, and they're paying a one-year rate of 3.8%. I think the if they've said several times, the Federal Reserve has said that the mere offering of the programs calmed down the market during March. And effectively, that was a good thing, but it was less important that the $500 billion that was set up for this program in the municipal market was actually loaned out than having a calmer market. So they essentially achieved their goal. There are a number of structural issues with the program. It's again, like Beth talked about, it's only for larger borrowers. They uh, do indicate that those large borrowers may set up programs for their sub municipalities that are not receiving direct help and then have to bear 100% of the risk if those borrowers don't pay back. So there are very few larger uh, direct eligible borrowers that actually want to enter in the program. I do have a few comments. I don't have my own time on infrastructure because my big concern is that the, the quote, calming of the market basically is going to make Congress complacent in helping with infrastructure. I want to just emphatically talk about the importance of some somewhat sleeper issues that we've just not dealt with in this country. The Harvard School of Public Health did a study a year ago on lead in the water in school districts. So it's not just Flint. They found that more than 40% of the schools around the country have higher than recommended levels of lead in their tap water. There's no level of lead that is considered safe for children to drink. A second example, as COVID has brought home, the issue of internet accessibility and broadband. Fitch put out a report in May that there are 21 million people without high-speed internet access. If you look at Microsoft's figures, they believe that there's 163 million people. I haven't dug into those numbers, but the answer is probably somewhere in between. We did once upon a time have the Federal Rural Electrification Administration went in and helped to bring light to rural uh, areas. It should be something that's reconsidered now as we realize how much telehealth is important in rural areas. Telecommuting is important for kids that have to learn online and also certainly underserved communities. I think I'll just stop there and hand it off to Back to Bill. Well, thank you, Natalie. Uh, this is just a reminder for those of you who have joined us midway through. Uh, you're listening to Special Briefing, which is brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research. And I just wanted to start with a comment before we get to questions. One comment about borrowing. While the Illinois so far is the only uh, the only borrower that we know of from the Fed MLF, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority did get authorization to borrow 
And uh, there's some expectations that later in the year, as the revenue gaps become clearer, we'll, we'll see other, other entities step up to the window. In addition, where we are seeing a lot of municipal, of, of state borrowing is uh, to prop up unemployment trust funds, state unemployment trust funds. States can borrow from the, uh, through the Labor Department, from the Treasury under the Social Security Act. And as of, just looked it up right now, as of last night, the outstanding advance balance, as they call it, is about $13.1 billion. And there's authorizations for about almost $21 billion in loans with California, New York, and Texas and Illinois leading the way among the biggest of borrowers. In context, in the last recession, states borrowed about $154 billion from the feds. In addition, they they borrowed another roughly $50 billion, more or less, uh, from internal sources, the muni market, and other places to prop up unemployment trust funds. So we are seeing a lot of borrowing there. States are getting a break under federal legislation. The normal rate on these, these advances, which are pretty short term, is 2.4%. At least until the end of the year, all of the interest has been deferred, not eliminated, but, but deferred. So states are getting a... Uh, uh, an immediate free ride. So we can watch for that number to, to keep going up. That Those loans are typically repaid through taxes on employers, sometimes on employees as well. States may be reluctant to increase uh, wage taxes as the economy recovers because this is a disincentive for employment. So we're probably looking at a very, very tangled uh, hairball of financial commitments for the next several years. Not quite sure how they'll be unwound. Most of the, in the last recession, most of the commitments were were finally paid off and unwound by the by 2015, 2016. So stay tuned on that front. We're going to turn to open mic uh, for, for the panel now and questions. Natalie sort of touched on this issue, and uh, as did Beth. We had a couple questions on equity, equality from Michael Gilder at the University of Illinois Chicago, who's a part of our Vocal Alliance research network, and also from Melissa Glynn at Ernst & Young. Melissa asked um, how the financial challenges align with the current objectives in driving equitable community investments. And Michael asked a, a similar one as cities focus on spending allocations and reallocations to enhance racial equity. Are there any coronavirus strategies that help accomplish both? That's a tough one. Beth, you, Beth and, and Natalie, do you want to address that? And, and Chuck as well, uh, perhaps put on your, your also your role as an as a attorney of, of, of great uh, experience in the real estate industry. I'm happy to jump in with an example. And I think it just is one example. There's quite a strong interest in this. But uh, the city of Dallas uses an equity impact assessment tool. And as part of that, they've used mapping tools and census tract data to analyze the race, ethnicity, economic status, and age to identify zip codes at higher risk for COVID-19. So in in June, just last month, of their just under 14,000 COVID-19 cases, they found 60% were in Hispanic and 9% were African-American residents. These high-impact COVID-19 neighborhoods turn out to be the same neighborhoods that have been impacted by past redlining practices. So by being able to target where the problem is, there's a 
better ability to focus testing and other resources on those communities to try to tap down these uh, the spread of COVID-19. But also, uh, they use these tools to think about what kinds of investments are supporting or hurting their social equity goals. So it, it's terribly important. It's getting a lot of attention throughout the country. Well, Chuck, you're in a part of the country that's uh, both hard hit by, by COVID-19 a second time, but before that was very hard hit by great inequities uh, and shortages of affordable housing. You know, it, Beth just described uh, described an example in, in Dallas. How are San Jose and the county and city governments in your area addressing this, this issue? Not enough housing. Uh, potential potential ev- evictions and mortgage delinquencies, and at the same time trying to fight COVID. We have a shortage of housing in California, and San Jose is certainly part of that because uh, California, for the last uh, couple of decades, has uh, way underperformed in terms of meeting the demand for housing. And so there are a great number of state policies that make it difficult to do housing. And so we're probably a million units short in terms of uh, meeting the demand for housing, which of course means that there's a tremendous shortage of affordable housing. And the people who suffer from the lack of affordable housing and high expensive housing are the same people who are most likely at risk uh, in terms of uh, the impact of COVID that we've seen from the, the equity data. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the COVID crisis is going to uh, help with the housing problem because it is a supply problem. We need more supply and uh, shutting down construction uh, is not going to generate more supply. But I don't think that the crisis is going to do much to solve it. But it does help highlight the, the disparity, the, the racial inequities and the disparities in the community which uh, politically I think will be useful. When there's less money to spend, there's less money you can spend to to try to deal with these inequities. And so I think what we will see is services being cut and the low-income communities are gonna feel the brunt of those service cuts more than uh, the, the better off communities. And with less money to spend, there's less money for creative and innovative programs that can deal with it. So I think things are going to get get worse as a result of the COVID crisis. I don't think there's a silver lining anywhere in it in terms of the equity issues. What does the, the coronavirus crisis do for opportunity zones? With much fanfare and some controversy, Chuck, in your area, are are you seeing uh, continued interest in in this program, or is is this uh, grinding to a halt? No, it's there's continued interest, but it's it's still at the planning kind of stages and the entitlement work stages, and not so much at break at breaking ground stage. If if there is a silver lining, and I don't think there there really is. It will be a reduction in construction costs just because of the reduced demand for construction as a result of the COVID crisis. So that could help some of these enterprise zones and opportunity zone projects uh, get underway. But 
with the you know reduced demand for real estate, the changing demand for real estate, I think some of these projects will have to be redesigned because I do think that real estate of the future, at least on the commercial side, is is going to have to uh, accommodate uh, the concern about pandemics. And I don't think we're going to see occupancy levels as high as we've seen them. I think that the open seating with lots of young people crammed together elbow to elbow on picnic benches, I think that era is over. I hope it's over. But uh, <laughs> I, I do think that the, the density workers per square foot of real estate is going to have to decrease. Of course, that may offset some of the you know, the the lack of demand, but it will change. And so I think the Opportunity Zone projects, some of them are going to have to be redesigned to be realistic uh, for commercial real estate in the future. Uh, Beth, is this something you've been following as well uh, at, at ICMA? I've been following it, but I don't have a lot to add to what Chuck said, except to say that it hasn't turned out to be as widely used as I think some predicted and hoped for. So I would just add that comment. Well, as long as I've, I've got you still on the uh, still on the on the open mic, I wonder if we can go back and unpack some of the numbers you, you were talking about. We we, we have uh, one question from uh, Jason Powell, who is a loyal loyal listener. Thank you very much, Jason. Uh, he is with the Virginia Senate Finance and Appropriations Committee. He's asking about to what extent have local property taxes so far this year lagged expectations. I would add, when does that hit in and how badly does that hit? And um, is this an area that's going to prompt cities and counties, especially, to seek uh, borrowing for operations? So I, I don't think that in the short term, the property tax is the big issue. And that's primarily because assessments are typically done once every three years. And so far, we're not seeing a decline in the assessments themselves. So I think it will be, you know, if there is going to be a big impact on property taxes, it will be phased in over three years. And the bigger concern will be whether or not people have enough income to pay for their property taxes. That's the real issue. But we're, we don't have enough data yet to say that that is the immediate problem. The immediate hit is on income and sales tax. And I think the property tax situation will phase in over time. So what you see in the short term is, you know, a lot of local governments have been able to get some help through some of their existing grant programs and rainy day funds. They're trying to hold on to some of that for next year, which they think is going to be worse. But we're really looking at three-year forecasts that are pretty scary. One correction I would make to what Chuck had mentioned about bankruptcies. Uh, while it's true in California, that's an option available to local governments. It's not available to most uh, local governments across the country. So the bankruptcy solution is not really one that is a viable one in many places. And, and even in California, it's been used rarely. That's certainly true. Uh, not every state has bankruptcy statutes, and and in some states that that do, it's by permission only, or they limit the size of the the size of the municipality. And in California, school districts are under much tighter control of of the state than um, than counties and municipalities are. So it's it's by no means a, a uniform structure, nor is anything else in uh, right. in, in this country. <laughs> Bill, if I could just add on to yeah. to that. 
part of the discussion. I completely agree with Beth in terms of the timeline. Property taxes are definitely longer cycle in terms of showing problems. But further to Chuck's point, commercial real estate is potentially likely to appeal to their local government to reduce their property taxes if they if they have vacant unusable space they may petition for lowering the taxes again that will take a while to show up but we've certainly seen and likely to continue to see the the hollowing out of retail physical space in many locations whether it's city or suburban or exurban and multifamily housing was uh, going great guns before a lot of this hit in some of the second and third tier cities. So I'm not sure how, you know, how those are going to play out. So I do, I, you know, I worry that there is going to be shakeout in the commercial real estate uh, sector that will eventually show up in lower revenues at the local level. I thank you for asking. I was about to ask the, the, the same question. Uh, <laughs> the, the retail, you know, the, the retail debacle that was already well underway since the last recession has has really accelerated. I live in a town in New Jersey that counts on one high-end mall for half of its of the local property tax bills. The this town, county, and school district. The mall has already has already got has several vacancies has already gotten one major abatement, which went through pretty quickly. And I think that uh, our town uh, fathers and mothers really have something to worry about because New Jersey is not a low-tax state. Uh, looking at New York, just with the, the, the vacancies up and down every avenue, you have to wonder whether the, the revenue shortfalls that New York City envisions are being somewhat low-balled. So I recently did a short piece on sales tax losses at the state level and did a deep dive on Florida and Texas. Both states count on sales tax for more than 60% of their general fund revenues, which is huge. They're the highest in the country. Texas has implemented internet sales tax, as many states have since the Wayfair decision. Florida has not, and you know they also have some significant budget problems. It wasn't actually that much of a surprise to see that they reopened Disney, to be honest, because one of the, the benefits of Florida has been their tourist attractions, their beaches, and their adventure parks, whether it's in Orlando or in Tampa with Busch Gardens. So sales tax within the state was paid on site as opposed to, you know, necessarily on the internet. So they didn't actually have to go aggressively into internet sales tax, but it's really hurting them right now. How about uh, to change the subject away from taxes for a second? We can certainly come back for it. And a reminder, you're, you're listening to Special Briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. Thank you all for tuning in, and uh, we'll have some words about what's coming up again uh, in the next couple of weeks at the end of the session. Eric Espino, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Eric, from Morgan Stanley, is asking about something that, that Chuck touched on, but I, I think is a, is a big issue for everybody on the panel. We've talked about the potential for pension holidays or, or pension borrowing. Haven't talked much about uh, OPEB, which is the acronym for Other Post-Employment Benefits or Employee Health Care, particularly retiree health care. This is a huge number. States and cities uh, have very, very small reserves. Gasby, uh, Gasby insists that this be treated as a long-term liability, and so 
obliges obliges governments to report uh, report these and report to build reserves against this. In practice, OPEB is, is as much pay as you go as it is something paid out of long-term savings. It's a very big issue in California, especially in, in the school system, but it's a big issue all around the, all around the country. Do you folks see this uh, as a major negotiating point uh, when states, counties, cities, school districts sit down at the table with, with unions? Can we afford the level of, of health spending that we're doing at the government level, even as our coronavirus and related medical bills increase. Let's talk about this for a few minutes. I think that it'll be on the negotiating tables eventually, but not immediately. Probably, you know, in a year or two when the cash reserves are exhausted and there's no other choice but to take on OPEB with the unions. Even in California, where pensions have a very strong uh, protection against modification, OPEB does not. And e- even though it is uh, subject to change, hardly anybody has, or hardly any jurisdictions have, have gone there because uh, the public employee unions uh, don't want to change it. They're very powerful. And so getting them to the table to discuss it is a, is a major challenge. But when you run out of cash and you get desperate, uh, you know, desperate people do desperate things and taking on OPEP will be one of those, those issues because it, it could save school districts enormous amounts of money as well as cities and counties. So it's there, it's an opportunity, but it's, it's right there with getting your employees to take a 10% pay cut, which is something we did in San Jose. Uh, it is a, an extreme challenge. And so the first place will be just cutting services by eliminating vacant jobs and then maybe layoffs. And then maybe you get to uh, benefits uh, like OPEB. The Center for State and Local Government Excellence has tracked OPEB questions, issues, expenditures, changes over the years. And we did see some changes after the Great Recession. A lot of times the changes were barely what I call incremental. Uh, So it'd be asking employees and retirees to pay higher deductibles, higher co-pays, things of that sort. Um, But as we know, retiree healthcare is is a very high priority for a lot of our public servants, including public safety and teachers. So uh, when you do come to the negotiations with uh, those employee groups, they will give on other things more quickly than they will on the issue of, uh, you know, for instance, even eliminating retiree health care. But it's become more usual to shift people over to Medicare when they're eligible. So that deals with a part of the expense. And you see a few places that have found a way to put in a, a different kind of a, a retiree health care program that's funded um, more like a deferred compensation benefit and that can be done, but it, it takes a lot of effort and I think making sure that employees feel like it's a good program before you could do something like that. Nonetheless, uh, still a, a major expenditure, pensions and OPEB in, in some smaller smaller cities around where I live, you know, because of, partially because of the demographics, uh, you see a city paying for one, one and a half or maybe even two workforces, one is, one is uh, on the street, 
or in the office and one is one is retired. It's a considerable issue. We're not going to deal with it in the next couple of minutes, but it, it's certainly something to watch. One point I would make, and I, you know, I can see all the angles of, about pensions that you might imagine, but in a time of an economic downturn, the fact that you do have some people who have a pension, so they have an income, they're on social security, they have an income, that actually helps stabilize uh, some of the economic downturn problems. So it's it's interesting, we, we can tend to look at pensions in one way, but they do provide stability in, in an economic downturn. Oh, they do indeed. And uh, a source of uh, really a, one of the underpinnings, Social Security is, is one of the great underpinnings of, of, of the economy. So I, I agree with you uh, totally there. Again, as, as long as, as your mic is open, Beth, maybe we can spend the last uh, couple minutes looking at Congress and what you think the, the Senate may come up with. We have the HEROES Act, which has passed the House, been declared dead on arrival. We've had a discussion on this mic uh, about one compromise piece of legislation that is, uh, that's worth about $500 billion. Uh, we have the Biden plan, which is $700 billion. We've had considerable discussion about linking all or part of the uh, of future aid to changes in unemployment, so it would be more of an index-based system than a uh, than a, a straight uh, a population-based or Senate-based Senate Senate allocation-based system. What, what are you hearing and and advocating for? So, all of the uh, national associations that work with local and state governments, the governors, the mayors, the cities, the counties, are united in pressing for direct robust, flexible aid. They hope that Congress will hear that because of these revenue shortfalls. They really need to help plug the hole so they don't have to do a whole lot more service cuts, job cuts, and furloughs. It's just worrisome to me when I think about this public health crisis that you know we might be laying off critical personnel at a time when we most need them. We're already having conversations about things like how who, who will be able to administer all the vaccinations? We're behind on that already. And if we're laying off people who have the wherewithal, the training to do that, it, it just is really concerning. Uh, but there are a whole lot of issues on the table, everything from infrastructure investment, the surface transportation bill needs to be reauthorized. We've got the potential uh, conversation around reinstating advanced refunding of bonds which would be a big help to, we talked about the, the fact that that's being done with different kinds of bonds, but municipal bonds, uh, if they could refinance them, they would have more money available for other infrastructure projects. So anyway, big push, and I mentioned also the um, federal medical assistance percentage. So we're trying to make sure we have all these ideas in front of the Senate and hope that at the end of the day, we get a package from the Senate that is flexible robust and gets money quickly out to state and local governments before we have to become part of the problem. Yeah. You're talking about advanced, yeah. advanced refunding of municipal debt, which has been off the table for a while now. Yeah, on the 2017 Tax Cut Act, it was eliminated. One of the things we fought really hard to keep but, but didn't work out. And so it'd be a high priority to get that back again. Did I hear Natalie? Like add, uh, yeah. Bill, but, uh, back to the the Great Recession and the stimulus package, uh, San Jose got 
millions of dollars from the federal government in a stimulus package, but it was all tightly controlled. We couldn't use it for operating dollars. We couldn't use it to maintain personnel. There's plenty of ways to spend it, and we did spend it successfully, and we kept track of it and all that. But having money that is uh, tightly restricted is not nearly as helpful in maintaining a workforce as money that is available to keep the jobs in place. Yeah, I would add on to that totally. Everything I've been hearing, uh, the programs that have been passed so far mostly deal with the spending side. And again, there are a lot of conditions on how the money can be spent. They've loosened them a bit. But for example, on FEMA, I mean, if you've had experience with FEMA, I don't, there may be some people on the call from there, just making sure that you have all the documentation, all your T's crossed and your I's dotted becomes a, a huge exercise for local uh, government employees that are already well overburdened with a lot of these other issues. And there is one bill, it wasn't mentioned yet, but the SMART Act, which Uh, is the Menendez bill in the Senate that is attempting to deal with the revenue side and some of the revenue losses that have happened. So yes, you know, pressure on Congress to not just get complacent is is absolutely critical. And Congress, uh, well, the the Senate, I believe, is is due to recess on the 7th of August. Uh, Speaker Pelosi has said she'll keep the House in session longer if, if need be. Uh, we haven't heard any any word from uh, the Senate about whether that's uh, whether that's a possibility. So it's as usual with all of our fiscal cliffs, it goes down to the wire, and we just have no idea what or when there'll be a vote. So I want to, in the couple minutes we have left uh, before we hit the top of the hour, and I let everybody go back to their day jobs. I want to thank everybody. Thanks uh, to Susan Walker, my co-host at Penn IUR. Thanks to the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR for supporting this enterprise. Thanks to Beth Keller, Natalie Cohn, and Mayor Chuck Reed for joining us today. It's been a really interesting, stimulating discussion. The archived version of this discussion, as well as all the other special briefings, are available at the Volcker Alliance website. It's volkeralliance.org or just Google Volcker Alliance. You can contact me or contact Nelia Stevens for further information. Thank you very much. Thank you for your questions and comments. Please keep them coming. We'll address them on future sessions. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.